0: I really enjoy planning trips. I like learning about a new place. I like doing my research. Just over the Christmas week, had some downtime and started thinking about next summer, what we're going to do as a family. We're going to try and do a camping trip. Where should we go? What exactly we should do? Switching which side of the continent we were planning on going to, all of that stuff, and then narrow it down to a place. and research the place, we're gonna to go to Colorado. So I get an atlas out, I get Google Maps out and I'm looking, I'm researching the national forest. Where am I likely to get eaten by a bear if I go there and leave my food in my tent? Well, what do I need to do to be safe? Okay, how can Ann and I get away from the kids on vacation? Can I have my in-laws with me for the camping trip and maintain my sanity? Working through all the details of the trip. I love looking at maps. And I actually like kind of memorizing maps. This is something that just shocked Anna when we were married. And I don't know which one of us is weird, but one of us probably is. Anywhere I go, I have this map in my head, like I'm constantly drawing a map. So if I want to go somewhere, I don't think about the streets. I think about the map, and I have a map in my head. And Anna, just that is the most foreign concept in the world to her, that someone would have a map in their head. I love drawing the map, I love getting the direction, I love knowing exactly where I'm going. To give you an idea of the detail with which I want to know where I'm going, I can tell you where five different Chick-fil-A's are between here in Colorado, and when I need to leave the last night so that we can schedule a meal for Chick-fil-A instead of McDonald's on our trip. I know where to get breakfast in Estes Park. I know all that stuff because I want to know you know, when we're going July, have you been outside? Does it feel like July is anywhere in the near future? Not at all. However, I just like knowing what's going on. Paul and his letter to Timothy is giving him some direction in his life. Timothy is now dealing with a dramatic change in the way he's living because Paul's going to depart. Suddenly, Timothy is kind of like the first line of gospel ministry and the sphere that Paul was operating in. Paul is in prison. Paul is going to die. This is the last letter he writes that we have. And so, Timothy gets this letter, and he's getting direction for how to live. And the whole letter kind of is this bouncing back and forth between this is what the world is going to be like, and this is how you live in the world. Then this is what the world is going to be like, This is how you live in the world. Guard the deposit, because you're going to come on trials. In the last days, there are going to be people, there are going to be these false teachers, these imposters, who claim to be godly but have no true power of godliness. How do you endure in that time? How do you endure in a world of suffering for the gospel? How can you be faithful? And so these contrasts are highlighted throughout the book, and here we have another one. Two weeks ago, we talked about the world that was coming, the godlessness in the last days, the false teachers, the imposters that are going to rise up in the church, and Timothy's need to endure, to avoid, to correct. So today, we're going to look at the alternative. How is Timothy supposed to get to his destination? What is the path he's supposed to walk down in order to survive this hostile world where there are secular trials, there are trials from the government, there are trials from the world around, there are personal trials, there are trials within the church. How can Timothy endure? Paul starts with a bit of praise, verse number 10 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. You, however... In opposition to the impostors described in the first nine verses, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work so paul is going to praise timothy but he's also going to point timothy at a pattern that he can follow so first we see paul's pattern then pass and the imposters have followed their own path they've done their own thing the imposters are self-focused what they want to do where they want to go that's where they're going to head you however timothy follow me follow the pattern that i am setting for you Timothy, you're not living a free-for-all. You don't get to decide what feels best. You don't get to decide your own truth. You don't get to decide the own way you're going to live. Follow something. Follow me, Paul says. And of course, grounded in following Paul is Paul is following Christ. And so, Timothy is not left to his own devices. You, however... In verse number 14, but you, it's the exact same Greek words in each of those two verses. But you, you however, there's this contrast. Follow Paul. You have followed Paul, continue following. What about Paul, though, is Timothy supposed to follow? He gives a list of nine different things. We'll divide them into two groups. There's seven different concepts that Timothy is supposed to follow in Paul. And then two examples of how Paul has done that. The first concept is teaching. You have followed my teaching, and you should follow my teaching. And what is teaching? Follow Paul's doctrine. The truth that Paul has said about Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, was crucified, buried, raised again, and ascended up into heaven. That truth, that core of Paul's gospel that he repeats over and over again throughout Romans and Corinthians and Timothy and Thessalonians and Philemon. Everywhere Paul is writing, he writes about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says to Timothy, follow that. Keep up with your doctrine. You must believe what is right. He starts with right belief. He's going to deal with right behavior, but he starts with right belief. It's not just Timothy be a good person. It's Timothy, follow Jesus, follow my teaching, follow the doctrine which I have given to you. Not only doctrine though, we must start with doctrine, but we must not stop with doctrine. He also says, follow my conduct. Follow my conduct, the way I live, how I handle my life, the general lifestyle. How do I deal with people who cut me off while I'm driving down the road? Probably not the exact example Paul was thinking about at that time. How do I deal with people in that situation? How do I deal with being cheated? How do I deal with people in the church who I don't think are acting properly? How do I deal with people who hurt me? How do I deal with worry? How do I deal with loss? And Paul says, look at me. I've followed Christ and I've given you an example, something worth following. Live with godly conduct. The third concept he wants Timothy to follow is his aim in life, his goal, his object. Well, what is Paul's object? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's willing to suffer all things for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul worries about the things that really matter most. And he tells Timothy, when you are following me, follow my goal, not just what I'm doing. Don't just do the actions I do, serve the goal that I serve. Paul is able to endure suffering at Lystra, at Iconium, at Derby. Paul is able to be shipwrecked. Paul is able to be imprisoned. Paul is able to suffer. Why? Because he had a goal. All throughout the New Testament, when there are commands of how we're supposed to live, there's also a promise of what will one day be. This world includes suffering. Yet, we look forward, we're faithful because there's a goal, there's an end, there's something we're working towards. And Paul says to Timothy, have the same aim as me. Don't just do the same stuff, do the same stuff for the same reason. Go to the same place. I am living for a reward that's coming in heaven, Timothy. You live for the same thing. Follow after me. If you don't want to be like the imposters who follow after themselves, who do whatever is in their own self-interest... Follow after me as I live with my focus on Christ. Paul says, follow me and my patience. There's another word very similar to patience coming down the pipe, but they're subtly different. Patience here is dealing primarily with his interactions with other people. Follow me in patience and how I deal with other people, Timothy. Now there are some times in Paul's writings where he seems less than patient. Galatians chapter 1 and 2, particularly, he seems pretty impatient. But there's also times, I mean, he wrote two letters to those jokers in Corinth. I'd be done after the first letter. He's very patient with the Corinthians. He's gracious with people. How about John Mark? At first, he's impatient with John Mark. John Mark leaves him. Barnabas says, hey, let's bring him along on our next trip. Paul's like, nah, he left, he's done. Then we're going to get to the end of 2 Timothy, and he says, bring Mark to me. He's profitable for me. He's patient with him. He forgives him, moves on with his life when he's wronged. And Paul says, follow me in patience. Follow me in faith. I accidentally skipped that one. Sorry. Follow Paul in his faith and his confidence in Christ. Follow him in his love. Again, his relationships with other people. 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 focuses on meat offered to idols and how the decision isn't really about the meat. The decision is about love for the brothers. How can I love those who are around me? Romans chapter 12, same idea. We love those who are in the body of Christ with us. Paul gives an example of loving the children of Israel. He says that he would himself be accursed if Israel could be saved. He loves other people and he says, Timothy, live a life of love. That's a pattern worth following. Life of steadfastness. Endurance is a similar word to patience, yet this is talking more about circumstances. Patience is that long-suffering with other people. And Here, when we talk about steadfastness, we're saying keep pushing onward. I have finished my race. I have fought the good fight, Paul says near the end of his life. That idea of enduring through suffering, being faithful to the gospel in spite of pressures, enduring, being strong, being steadfast. And so, Paul gives him this model of a godly life. This is how you ought to live, Timothy. Follow me. But he also does it with that kind of gracious, loving, fatherly tone we see in Timothy, where he says, you already are doing this. You already are doing this, Timothy, but keep on doing it. He does not stop there. He moves on and he gives a couple examples. He says, verse number 11, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. So persecutions and sufferings, these are linked together. They're two words in a family. And where did he endure persecutions and sufferings? In Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. We've read some of these accounts already this morning, but we'll look particularly at the persecutions. The story of what happens to Paul in Antioch can be found in Acts chapter 13. Verse 44 says this, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out loudly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were pointed unto eternal life believed, when the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So Paul in Antioch has what is undoubtedly a profitable ministry. He's preaching to the Gentiles and they're excited. As many as they are appointed unto eternal life believe. And so the Gentiles in Antioch are believing the gospel, but the Jews don't like it. And so here he is at this thriving in ministry, this exciting time, but he's driven out of the city by these hostile people. This is near where Timothy lived. Okay? So we're in Timothy's region of the world. Timothy is intimately familiar with these moments. This happens on the first missionary journey. On the second missionary journey, Paul comes back and picks up Timothy to go on the rest of the journey. So this is before Timothy is with Paul, but he's intimately acquainted with what happens. about Iconium? The next chapter, chapter 14. Now at Iconium they entered together in the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Another banner day for the ministry of Paul, many believing. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. They learned of it, fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So now he is in Iconium, even closer to where Timothy grew up. So a story again, Timothy is familiar with this. And so he's in Iconium, he's preaching. The Jews stir up the Gentiles and some of the Jew, the unbelieving Jews. In spite of the fact that many are believing, there's a plot to kill them by stoning. And so Paul runs out of the city. He flees. Profitable day of ministry that ends in Paul at risk of his life. How about the next place, Lystra? Now we're really close to where Timothy is from. Verse number 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. They threw rocks at him. Not rocks. Rocks. They threw rocks at him. They stoned him. So much so, they assumed the guy is dead. Whether he was dead or not, whether he was resurrected, that could be a debate even here. Because it says he rose up. Now that could mean he just got up. It could mean that he was resurrected. We don't know. But he faces stoning so much so they think he is dead. He was most definitely in the concussion protocol. And then he raises up. The disciples gather about him. He rose up, entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. That's where Timothy's from. This is the path that Timothy meets Paul following. Paul gets to Timothy in Derby, and he literally was just stoned the day before. He was dead the day before. And this is the Paul that convinces Timothy to serve with him. That's the situation Timothy's coming from. And so when Paul is urging Timothy to be faithful, he says, you know that this is what I faced, yet I've been faithful. I've endured this and I have maintained my faithfulness. You also must maintain your faithfulness. Timothy should and has followed Paul rather than living like the imposters who serve themselves. So he must now be dedicated to continue in Paul's teaching, to continue in Paul's example. Now, if I'm Timothy, I might be thinking, okay, I can do that, but I'm really hoping that there's less stoning in my biography. I'd really like not to have rocks thrown at me. I'd really like not to be driven out of a town. And you can almost see, Timothy, if I'm sitting there reading that, well, Paul, yes, that is what happened to you, but it might not happen to me. Paul's going to head that right off at the pass. Verse number 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So here you go, Timothy. If you're going to follow my teaching, you're going to follow my way of life, you're going to follow my aim of life, you're going to follow my patience, my love, my steadfastness, you're also going to follow through persecution. You don't just get the good part of the list and not the bad part. They're both going to be present. You must endure persecution because all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And while they're being persecuted, to add more to it, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Those who are godly... And in Christ Jesus, godly people who are followers of Jesus will be persecuted. And not only will they be persecuted, evil people will keep getting worse. You can imagine. Put yourself in Timothy's shoes. I'm hoping this gets better. I hope that after Paul is kind of the first guy to get stoned, like the next guy they'll just call names. And then the next guy they'll be nice to. He's kind of hoping, maybe, that it's not going to be so bad. But Paul says, you're going to follow me. You're going to live godly. You're going to follow Jesus. You will be persecuted. While you're being persecuted, evil people get worse and worse. There's some tension here. Verse 13, evil people are getting worse and worse. Verse 9, the evil people will not get very far. So we kind of have two sides of this here. The evil people will not get very far, but at the same time, Paul's saying the evil people get worse and worse. So which is it? Are they not going to get far, or are they going to keep getting farther down the road to being worse? I think the resolution comes from understanding the fact that evil will intensify, but evil will not win. And so we get to the point where Paul is again grounding hope in the future. They are going to get worse and worse, but he's just told Timothy they're not going to win. And we experience that we, sometimes when we look at the world around us, we feel like it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Yet God says that evil is not going to win. And so we can have confidence while evil seems to prosper that evil will not win. So we must endure. Because if evil is going to win, we might as well just be evil. right? If the evil side is winning... I'm going to switch my loyalties. It's like watching sports with my kids. They're cheering for whoever's winning. They don't have a lot of loyalty to the team. They're going to cheer for the team that they think is going to win. And so that loyalty, well, it's really easy to switch loyalty when you know you're going to lose. Yet in Christianity, even though it feels like we're going to lose, we know that we're going to win. Evil will prosper, but it will not win. In fact, evil spawns more evil. It's interesting how it's, they're deceiving, but they're also deceived. Verse number 13, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's this circular thing. They're evil, they're deceiving, but they're also deceived. The imposters, in verses 1 through 9, they think they're living the high life. They think they've got it good. They're doing whatever they want to do. They're living for their self-interest. Paul says they're deceitful, but they're also deceived. They don't think they're going to be like Janus and Jambres. They don't think that their evil's going to be found out, but they're deceived. And so while the evil increases, it never wins. Their own lies deceive them. A world hostile to God makes its own truth makes its own worldview so that it can make sense of the world. However, the truth that they make for themselves is itself a lie. All we have to do is look at the world around us and see a culture which says, I can't believe in a God who does this. And that failure to accept truth, that deceit, is a damning deceit. Their own deceit deceives themselves. And so these evil people prosper, they deceive, but they themselves are deceived. So it's really more bad news. How is Timothy supposed to endure this? He's supposed to just be like Paul? Well, Paul's going away. You can almost imagine Timothy here saying, Well, I'm kind of hoping for some comfort. Seems like you're about to die, Paul. So now you're going to tell me to follow you. Well, follow you where? And Paul doesn't give the promises that Jesus gives that where I go, you will be also. Paul doesn't say he's going to send a comforter. Paul doesn't say any of that stuff. He can't. He's not God. And so Paul and Timothy, you can imagine Timothy just, okay, follow you, but you're going to die. What am I supposed to do? Paul gives some more instruction. Verse number 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So, here's just Timothy. Look at what you have learned. You have been taught from a child. We heard about Lois and Eunice's mother and grandmother who trained him up in the word of God. We know about Paul. You've received this training, but all of that training was built on something. Timothy didn't grow up learning Lois and Eunice and Paul's opinions on stuff. He didn't grow up learning their opinions on the world. He grew up learning what God had revealed about himself in his word. And so while the evil people are constantly moving, the evil people are following their own deceit. They're getting worse and worse. They're progressing on. Paul says to Timothy, look backwards. Look at the foundation. Look at what your life is built upon, the teaching that you have received from your mother, from your grandmother, and from me. You've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Here's where we get our refrigerator verse from this passage. The verse you're going to hang up with a magnet. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And so, He's saying the sacred writings, the scripture, it's from God. You have been given the word of God. It is as if God himself was standing next to you and speaking to you. What greater authority is there than the word of God? The word of God which spoke the earth into existence. The word of God which holds things together. The word of God which conquers armies. The word of God which raises up mountains. What better authority do you have? Yes, Paul is going, but Paul has only built on a foundation of the word of God. When he uses the word scripture, I have to think kind of in a few different lights about what that word means. Now to Timothy, at this point in time, there's going to be some New Testament writings, but for the most part, scripture is the Old Testament because the New Testament is being written. Timothy didn't have the book of 2 Timothy to be raised in before he got the book of 2 Timothy. That happened later on in his life. So his mother was not reading 2 Timothy to him as a child. Yet, he had the Old Testament. He had the Gospels. He had the accounts of Jesus. And then, later on, Peter refers to Paul's writing as Scriptures. Those words written with the apostolic authority are included in that big category of Scripture. So when he says the Scriptures, all Scripture is breathed out by God. He's saying the prophets, the writings... The histories of the Old Testament, the Gospels, and now the writings of the Apostles. These scriptures, these documents, which we have recognized their divine character, they are breathed out by God. He has written them through men. He has spoken his word. He has revealed himself. And there is an unshakable foundation. While the deceivers deceive themselves, the deceivers have no ground for truth. They're just living off their own lies, and then their lies create new lies, which create new lies, which create new lies. And really, it can all go back to the garden where we believed the lie that we could be as wise as God. And then, extrapolating on that lie, we kept trying to be wiser than God and trying to make sense of the world. Paul says stop doing that and look at the unshakable authority of God's word. The word that spoke the world into existence is accurate, it is true, it is profitable. This is where you must rest your confidence. Turn to God's word. If you are going to endure in a time where the world is hostile, if you are going to not be deceived by the imposters surrounding you, you must be grounded in the word of God, which gives an unshakable authority, which is irreformable, unchangeable, and secure. So turn to the word of God, Timothy This verse gets used constantly. Probably one of the most common verses that I would quote just offhand when I'm preaching. We use it all the time. But how often do we ground it in its context? These two verses, they stand alone and they're important. All scripture is breathed out by God. That is important. That is key. Cardinal doctrine. It's worth referencing on its own. But how many of us, when we're thinking, man really struggling. I'm really suffering today. How many of us turn to this passage? Probably go to the Psalms. Certainly nothing wrong with that, because all scripture is profitable and, and get them for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction. But how often do we turn to this verse when we're discouraged, when we're facing opposition? Yet Paul, when Timothy faces opposition, he gives him the word. He says, you're feeling discouraged? You're not sure you can endure? You're feeling your grasp slipping on faithfulness in spite of opposition? Well, here, remember that you have God's Word. Remember that you have the Bible. Remember that you have the Scriptures. If we are struggling to endure, the first place we ought to turn is this book. If we are struggling to believe, we ought to turn here. Too often, when we are struggling, where do we turn? Either turn to those around us, or even worse, we turn right inside. I'm struggling. I'm depressed. I'm discouraged. So I'm just going to sit in silence and think about my discouragement. And how often does that help us? Yet Paul says, you're discouraged. You're facing opposition. Remember this. Remember, you have God's solid foundation. You feel like garbage today? Well, this hasn't changed. You're worried today? Well, this hasn't changed. Everything it says about God was true when Abraham was receiving revelation from God, was true when Moses was receiving revelation from God, was true when David was receiving revelation from God, was true when Isaiah was receiving revelation from God, was true when Jesus was giving revelation, was true when Paul was receiving revelation. Everything that is written here is 100% equally as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. That's something to stand on. That's not going to change. When the world doesn't make sense, when the way that you think about things doesn't make sense anymore, this hasn't changed. We may grow in our ability to understand it. We may find out things that we used to think about it are not true. But this solid foundation stands. And if we, when we are suffering, turn our attention to the scriptures, we will be confident in a few key things. We'll be confident that there is a God. We will be confident that there is a powerful God. We will be confident that there is a good God. We will be confident that there is an end, that there is a reward for our suffering. And when we are motivated in that sense, when we know that my suffering is worth it because God says it is worth it, then I can suffer well. When I just have to think in my mind, well, maybe my suffering will get better. Well, maybe it won't get better. Oh, well, maybe I can just figure out why I'm suffering. Okay, if I can think of a good reason for my suffering. well, I might not know the reason. I might never know the reason. My mind is not a sure foundation. My mind is a dumpster fire. My mind is troubled. But if I anchor my hope in the word of God, I will be able to suffer well so Paul says Timothy follow me but even more importantly follow the revelation of God that you have seen from me follow God himself do not come up with your own way of worshiping your own way of living how many people When they look for truth, do not look for the Bible to tell them truth, but look for truth that's going to satisfy their curiosity, that's going to satisfy what they want. That's why we get people saying, I can't believe in a God who does this. Well, they can't believe in a God who's bigger than they are then. Is by definition when people say, I need to find a God who meets these criteria. And if the God of the Bible doesn't meet these criteria, I don't believe in him. He has to be good. He can't allow suffering. He can't do this and he must do this. And they set out these criteria, but those criteria are coming from us, which means all we want is a God who's just as smart as I am. That's not a very good God. It's not worth worshiping a God who's no smarter than I am. And so we come up in our own minds, our own authority, our own way of viewing God in the world. It never works well. The Bible is filled with examples of God revealing something, man saying, eh, I think I've got a better plan, and God showing that they were wrong. We can start in chapter 3 of the Bible when God says, don't eat the fruit. Satan says, actually, you'll get really smart if you eat the fruit, and you'll be like God. And Eve says, I want to be smart. God, you really don't know what you're talking about. How could it be bad for me to be smarter? How could it be bad for me to be wiser? So she eats the fruit, pass it on to Adam, he eats the fruit as well. Cain and Abel, God gave a certain liturgy, a certain way he was supposed to be worshipped. Abel does it, Cain doesn't. Cain gets mad and he kills Abel. Keep going, Nadab and Abihu, those are Aaron's sons. They're offering an offering of incense to God. Incense that God did not tell them to offer to him. They're worshiping in an unauthorized fashion. God calls it a strange fire, and God burns them up with fire. How about the golden calf? Israel's trying to worship Yahweh. When they make the golden calf, they're trying to worship their covenant God, but they're trying to do it their own way because they think they've got a better plan. Every time Israel follows after idolatry, it's the same thing. Saul and Amalek. God commands him to kill Agag and all the Amalekites. He goes, he kills most of them, leaves some sheep. Samuel comes walking out and Saul runs up to him. I've obeyed the command of the Lord. Samuel says, and why do I hear sheep? I told you to kill the sheep. Well, Saul had his own plan. Saul had his own way. Rather than looking to what God had said, he looked to his own authority and it left him wanting. Even the good guys in the Bible, David, wants to return the ark to Israel, and he wants to get it there quickly. Throw it on a wagon instead of carrying it. That's slow. Put it on a wagon. Starts falling off the wagon. Uzziah decides his hand is more holy than the dirt, so he's going to catch it so it doesn't touch the dirt. God says, nope, the dirt's better than your hand, and Uzziah is dead because they did not follow God's command for how to worship him. God has established the way the world looks. He has revealed it to us. And we keep on saying, I don't agree. We keep on arguing. We keep on fighting back. And if we are going to suffer well, it's going to be because we have absolute confidence that God knows what he's doing. And the problem is so often when we suffer, we say, God, I really don't think this is necessary. I could understand a little suffering, but this is too much suffering. I could understand a little opposition, but this is too much opposition. And rather than grounding our entire hope and a God who has revealed himself to be sovereign and good, we ground ourselves in our own rationale, our own understanding of the way the world ought to work. We make God in our image instead of being in his image, and we fall short. When people create their own way of knowing and worshiping God, they commit idolatry. When we worship God the way we want to, we commit idolatry. That's why God gave the second commandment to Israel. Don't make a graven image. Why? Because it's not going to be accurate anyway. If you make a graven image, it's not going to be a representation of a God who has no bodily form. You can't do it. So if you're worshiping an image of God, you are not worshiping God because that's not what he looks like. God wants us to worship Him the way He has prescribed worship. He wants us to suffer because we have confidence in His wisdom, in His power over our suffering. Scripture is essential, it is the only solid foundation of authority. And when we face suffering, we ought to turn first not to ourselves, not to our rationalizations, not even to our families we ought to turn first to God who has revealed to us the way the world works. If you are looking for hope and suffering, there is only one place to look. It is what God has revealed about himself. If you are looking for salvation, there is only one place to look. It is how God has revealed himself as a saving God. If you want to endure, there is only one place to look. So when Paul tells Timothy to endure... He gives him this assurance. Endure based on what you have been taught from the holy scriptures. Notice Paul doesn't point Timothy even to his own conversion experience. He doesn't say, Timothy, remember when you believed this? No, he goes even more concrete than that. He says, Timothy, this is the truth. This is God breathed. This is inspired. This is God's word. This is your confidence. Nothing you have experienced, nothing that you think, nothing that has happened to you, only what God has revealed. So how do we deal with this? We ought to have an appetite for the Word of God. We need an appetite for the Word of God. We need to be hungry for the Word of God. It needs to be more than a trivia question. It needs to be something we read for life. I enjoy reading trivial pursuit cards. I I find that kind of fun, reading all the questions and then I get to cheat when I play the next time because I already read all the questions. I ought to read the Bible a little differently than I read a Trivial Pursuit card. I'm not just trying to get a new piece of information. I am encountering what God has said about himself. I ought to have an appetite for that. You know, in our modern Western context where literacy is assumed, it's assumed that we all know how to read the Bible, we've kind of shifted that Bible reading to personal Bible study, which is a wonderful, wonderful gift from God that we have that ability But throughout 2,000 years of church history, that's not been the case. Maybe more accurately, through 1,900 years of church history, because we've got about a century of almost universal literacy now. But for the 1,900 years previous to that, that was primarily found in the preaching of God's Word, the gathering together of those who could not read to hear it read, to hear it proclaimed. How's your appetite for the Word of God, both read personally and preached publicly? your appetite is a matter not only of frequency, but also of style. You can find preachers who, when you listen to their sermon, you will always feel better when you're done listening to the sermon. You can find someone like that. Are you listening for someone who makes you feel better, or are you listening for someone who is preaching the word of God faithfully? Now, I'm not talking super narrowly about style. There's all sorts of different styles of preachers. Some you like more, some you like less. I hope I'm at least in like the top 50 or something for you guys. But like, there's going to be different styles. That's fine. But are you listening to someone who's preaching the word of God faithfully? Or are you listening to someone who's scratching you where it itches? If this is our hope, if this book is the way we can endure, we ought to love it. We ought to open it as often as we can. We ought to listen to other people teaching it. We ought to be teaching it to the ones that we love. If this is our anchor because it tells us about God, then that is where we ought to turn first. God revealed himself most clearly when he came and dwelt among us as the word. In just a couple weeks, we're going to begin walking through the book of John. Jesus is the word. Dwelling among us. And this morning, we're going to celebrate communion together, as always. And we get to remember the word who dwelt among us. God made bodily what was spiritual before. What we could only read about, he made so we could touch. Jesus became truly man. Truly God Truly man, the ultimate revelation of God on this earth is found in Christ. And he has departed, but he also left us with a way to remember him. With a way to have the revelation of Jesus become present to us every time we observe communion. Because as we observe communion, we see the representation of the body and the blood. We hold it, we touch it, we feel it. We taste it. So this morning, we're going to do that together as a church family. We're going to remember that the anchor, the Bible really in and of itself is not our anchor. The Bible points us to our anchor. The Bible tells us about God. It reveals God to us. It is the primary way that God has revealed himself to us today. So we turn to it first and foremost to know God. But we also recognize that God, God has revealed himself to us in his son. And while we long for his returning, we wait and we celebrate by observing the Lord's Supper.